Hello and welcome back to The Big Podcast. Today we've got a very special guest in the form of David Parker, aka Gods. He's down here in Australia commentating the Convictus Dota 2 tournament, which is the largest Dota 2 tournament Australia's ever seen, with $50,000 AUD of prize pool, some large teams like Mineski and OG taking part in it. So we've brought him into the office and we wanted to have a little bit of a different chat with him today. So we're talking to him not just about analytics or commentary, being on stage for the international. We're actually diving more deeply into Beyond the Summit, which he is the co-founder and COO of, and talking a bit about startups, pivoting, non-endemics in the industry, both brands as well as employees looking to get inside, how you can create your own esports company, and the idea of the nitty-gritty revenue streams and how things actually operate behind the scenes, some of the challenges over that time, and what he's looking forward to in the future. So without further ado, I introduce you to the podcast, which was recorded live at our studio here in lovely Melbourne, Australia. One of the best things you can do for esports in Australia or abroad is support those companies that support you. What we do here in Australia at Big Esports is we've partnered with PLE Computers. They're a PC retailer that sell all of the best gaming gear. They also make a whole bunch of custom PCs, whether it's a full water-cooled massive rig to play Crisis at full graphics, or whether it's something nice and simple to take to LAN parties, play CSGO, Rocket League, Fortnite or otherwise. They've got these different solutions for you. What we're doing with PLE is instead of just a general advertising partnership, we're trying to educate audiences and we're trying to grow the local scene. So PLE are working with us on our mentor courses where we're providing discount on both shipping and parts to the people that join in. We've partnered with them on our high school boot camp where we're educating high school students on mental health, physical health and wellness, along with technology integration, understanding how they can take apart and build their own computers and save money on pre-builds. We're also working with them on this podcast, which we're hoping is educating all of you, not only on just talking to cool people and understanding how they think and feel but what their struggles are, how their businesses work and how the back end works. So if you're looking to support a company that supports the scene, make sure you check out PLE at ple.com.au and grab yourself a bargain. All right, David, thanks for coming in today, mate. Do you want to just give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself, maybe a little bit of indication on your history and then a quick summary of what you're doing today? I'm an Australian Dota 2 commentator who founded the US-based broadcasting studio called Beyond the Summit. I used to be a professional Dota 2 player a long time ago, um, over 10 years ago, playing here in Australia. So I have my roots um, in the Australian Dota scene, um, but eventually kind of branched out into the commentary scene and found myself commentating international events and then over time uh, setting up what was initially a Dota 2 broadcasting studio in the US. Yeah, and how do you how do you find that being an Aussie over in the US? Do you find that uh, they love your accents, as is the the cliche? Do you find there's a bit of a pushback from the locals, or is it a bit of a just a big happy family at BTS? Oh, it's it's definitely happy family. Uh, it it definitely something that also helped me stand out as a new commentator. Um, a lot of you look around at the esports scene, a lot of the events, as you'll see a lot of a lot of Aussies, a lot of Brits, um, a lot of people who, I guess, have that. Uh, voice that people associate at least in esports with commentating um mm. and it's definitely helped me but i think being in the u.s it's something where um people just you know think of me as that's that's david that's that's gods um and uh it's never really been a big part of my identity per se because i've lived in the u.s for so long so i grew up there spent over 10 years there and have found myself almost as much uh, ingrained in the american culture as australian culture yeah, I find it really interesting in the Dota scene, we have so many Aussies at the top. Obviously, people like yourself, we've got Toby One, and especially on the on the appearances side of things. But it's obvious that our scene here, as far as the localized content, isn't so much developed. Do you find that 
the Australian scene not being developed is what pushed you to go overseas and do a bit more? And do you think that's maybe the same for some of the other people that have moved over? Yeah, definitely for myself and even before I left Australia. Um, Toby One, who's one of the biggest O2 play-by-play casters, he left Australia to join join Dota in Germany. Um, the single reason is there just wasn't uh, a career for us here in Australia. Um, there wasn't an, a developed Australian scene. This was back in 2011, 2012. Uh, there wasn't a way for us to uh, make a living broadcasting Dota back then. We didn't have um, the necessary infrastructure, things like just internet to stream off of, and even things like... Um, tournaments and studio support things that uh like joined dota for toby or that i created in la was just something we couldn't really build um in australia because it was still very early days and i feel like the australian esports scene was still very much in its infancy back then whereas um in other areas like america europe um it was already becoming much um more welcomed um there was a lot more support from sponsors from uh different companies looking to build things there and it felt like at the time at least uh, australia was lagging a little bit behind Mm. And I guess you might agree with this is that esports is in this interesting space where you can't just own a percentage of the market, uh, you know, come in and expect your company to thrive by taking 10% of the market share from your competitors. It's a lot of building the market as as it's growing. How do you find that it works in esports versus some of the traditional space? Are there any unique campaigns you've had to do with some of your competitors in the space to be able to make more money for everyone? Yeah, I think it's we had to learn that one the hard way, perhaps, because we came into the space and we're very much looking to, I think, fall for that uh, pitfall that so many people do, which is, you know, we got to, you know, compete for our share of the pie. Uh, I think it was over time that we learned, hey, we're all better off working together to grow the scene. So mm-hmm. we learned to um, cooperate and coexist with other um, Dota 2 broadcasting studios, companies like Join Dota, uh, more recently companies like Moonduck in the US, who's another Dota 2 broadcasting studio. We also learned that we don't need to, you know, compete with the ESLs, the DreamHacks who are running Dota 2 events, the PGLs, because our event's going to fill its own niche and it's going to engage the community in a different way uh, and provide a different value to the Dota scene and the community to what they're doing. And what they're doing is going to, you know, bring in more players, bring in more hype and interest. And what we're doing is going to keep, you know, focus more maybe the casual, fun personality side of the players, the scene, and just the our events kind of look at what the viewers just don't see because it's normally away from fans it's more personable um and so i think all of us uh, have realized you know we have to cooperate try not you know compete to get all the top teams at our events and try and screw each other over because end of the day if we can all help grow the size of the pie then we're all going to be in a much better place yeah so talking about some of those other companies that mentioned like moonduck and, and join dota etc it seems that there are quite a few of these broadcasting studios within Dota 2 and it's not so common in some of the other games. Do you think it's the the way that the tournaments are operated in or the way that the business case works in Dota 2 lends more towards this or do you think there is definitely some room for either yourself or for other companies to open or expand into other games, say Counter-Strikes, Overwatch, Rocket League, etc.? Yeah, the the big difference probably with Dota compared to those other games is just Valve. Valve are hands-off as the developer. They uh, have not created an official league for the game like Riot have done with LCS like Mm. Blizzard with the Overwatch League Uh, they've never gone for any kind of franchising model or just official um, pro circuit until the last couple years where they introduced the Dota pro circuit and even that was still a very hands-off approach where it's not really Valve events they're just Valve sanctioned events that work towards TI but they're still operated by all these third-party organizers so um, I think Valve's hands-off approach and the fact that anyone could come into 
the scene and just run tournaments meant that it was a entirely free market for companies like us, um, BTS, to leverage the fact that we could just go and commentate tournaments other people are running. We started off as just a third-party broadcasting studio. We didn't run many of our own events outside of some small online ones. It was only maybe the last four years or so um, where we started running summits and our own first-party content because that was kind of the, the shift that we took to keep up with what we saw as like just a changing trends and we kind of found a niche for ourselves um, where if we wanted to grow and expand and do bigger things, we would need to run our own events and have our own vision for where we could shape and uh, push the Dota scene. So I think it was also very unique because it's such a global audience. That's the other reason why these studios exist in Dota because so many of these tournaments are run out of Eastern Europe, um, in Russia, in Ukraine, uh, mm. in China. So there was this big gap where these events being run by like a Chinese operator didn't have an English broadcasting partner. They didn't really see the English audience as their audience either. So they weren't really looking to broadcast their events uh, in English. And we just came in and said, hey, look, there's a demand for this. People want to watch this. People want to listen to this. So um, our initial business model was built around kind of bridging that gap between the Western community and the Eastern community, since there was this really high level Dota being played that wasn't being consumed um, by the Western viewers. And do you find any sticking points in that area? Because you identified, obviously, that, that BTS runs some of your own events as well as you can function as a commentary suite. And I assume that you yourself as a talent can even function separately. So you've almost got three different tiers of ownership there or three different tiers of service. Do you find any pushback from the PGLs, the ESLs, et cetera, in those relationships? Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a balancing act for me specifically because I'm probably one of the few talent left at BTS. Um, we've kind of stepped away from being a talent house where initially when we first started and we were just broadcasting Dota, we everyone we hired was you know directly um, working on Dota as a commentator for the most part. We had um, mm-hmm. of our first seven employees five of us were dota 2 commentators one of them was doing production and another was helping uh run our like hospitality for our events so over time though now i'm probably only one of the few kind of full-time talent left at beyond the summit dakota's still doing a few events but our shift has been more towards being a first party event operator doing services for brands and sponsors like white label events campaigns for them so for me personally it's definitely challenging because i still go to those events as talent that someone like you know pgl is running but then we're also you know competing in some sense as a fellow event operator. So figuring out how to balance those two things, I guess, is the best way of putting it, has been definitely a challenge for me. So taking a look at that talent type thing, obviously you're you're not shy of TI appearances at the international. How does that how does that work day to day as a pure talent taking on a task? Normally we have a dictated schedule from Valve in the case of TI or whatever other event. You'll have your assigned matches that you need to be in a certain place to commentate. Normally you'll be watching pretty much the games from start to finish, even when you're not broadcasting matches. So you can just be aware of what's what's going on in the rest of the tournament. You're researching, studying, looking at drafts, looking at team histories, looking at storylines, trying to figure out if there's anything you've maybe missed from past results, matches that teams have played. My focus is normally more on the analytical side, being on a lot of analyst panels or functioning more as like the color commentator. So I'm kind of looking for little tidbits that will really engage the viewers or give them like that added reason to care about the match in front of them. Because, you know, these viewers have seen EG or Fnatic play hundreds of times what what makes mm. this specific match special or different or unique why does this match matter more than the last one what's the selling point on any individual game and why why should they watch why should they care so i think that's the majority of my preparation is just thinking about you know what's what's the storyline here what's gonna sell to the viewers to make this as engaging of an experience as possible for them 
Yeah, so staying on that same track of the talent, is there a training regime or anything specific that you go through? So not necessarily even keeping your knowledge up to date, but how do you develop your skills as a commentator, just like a player would day-to-day develop their aim and their muscle memory? I think there can be. Uh, I would say personally, uh, that's something I was always been very self-taught. Um, for me, most of my uh, improvement has been in the past looking at my own commentary with colleagues so like me myself ld ben merlini we used to just sit down and sometimes watch games that we commentated together give each other feedback and talk about whether it's phrases we overuse whether it's different ways we need to work together because we're often commentating in duos so trying to improve our rapport and just really analyze and assess things that did and didn't work Uh, i would say now more these days um, i don't personally do that kind of self-improvement on the talent side as much as i used to i think what i do now instead is watch what other talent are doing. I watch a lot of CSGO events. I watch a lot of StarCraft, WarCraft 3, whatever other esports is on Twitch. I just love consuming it and um, really enjoy watching and taking little things that different talent will do from those games, like watching the League of Legends worlds, like just seeing how their talent work together, how they do their commentary because they have a three-person casting set, which is very different to what we do in Dota. And I kind of think, okay, mm. if we want to do that in Dota, how are we going to apply that? What makes their three-person commentary style work while we're just doing this, you know, two-man caster setup typically? So um, a lot of it for me is just watching other people and thinking about what works, what doesn't work, what I like, what I don't like. Because and that also comes back not just for me personally as a talent, but we're running events. So I think, well, what what can we do that's new, unique, and innovative at a Beyond the Summit Dota event? Because you know everyone's doing the same thing. How do we kind of push the limit and change what the norm is? Uh, for the better of the viewers. Mm. So going back to BTS um, functioning, can you give us an indication of the size and scale of the company and a bit of an indication as to how it scaled over that time and how you got from where you started to however many employees and, and goals you're setting at the moment? Yeah, we we first moved out to California back in 2013. The start of the year was when uh, myself and LD set out to essentially build a studio there to commentate Dota as much as we could. Uh, we probably were casting Dota 60, 70 hours a week. We were doing it out of a house initially before we uh, moved to our offices, which was maybe a few years after we moved out there. Initially, it was just the two of us full time. We hired a producer. And then a few years later, when we moved into our, our new facilities, it was about five or six of us. And it's only really been the last couple of years where we've seen a big expansion a lot of that came because we expanded into other games so we're no longer just a dota studio we are not even just a dota events company we're doing tournament summits for smash for csgo we're looking to expand into new titles as well so we've seen growth from having four or five of us just six years ago to having 25 employees today so we have a design and engineering studio in hungary we have 19 full-time employees with us in la at the office Um, that's kind of split between production sales, creative content. So we put a big focus on making sure that every event we're running first party is unique, has a different kind of creative and content kind of approach to it that's going to make it kind of set it apart. Uh, Most well known for our summit style events, which is very content and kind of uh, humor driven, more laid back, not looking to be as professional. And that's something that's worked really well for us. Yeah, and you know, we kind of touched on this a little bit before, but obviously there's there's not too many other commentary houses that exist around. But you know, there's been a lot of commentary houses that have also come and gone over that time. Uh, is there a specific need in the market or a gap that you think BDS fills, and that's the reason that you're staying around, or is there some other secret source? I think it's hard because the shift and change in esports has been very much to take everything in house for developers. So mm. uh, if you look at most of the new developers with 
big esports titles um the more recent ones being i would say like rocket league rainbow six and then also overwatch as well these titles have kind of brought everything in-house for esports so there isn't really room for new companies to come and make these kind of commentary studios in the past there was initially some attempt you know make one for csgo with room on fire that was what uh andrews and similar initially set up because they were commenting all the big events they'd seen what bts has done and they used uh bts's kind of model of what something they could create where they're a group of commentators they're like kind of a content team they're going around making great content but um, the issue there was that even there all of the broadcasting for these esports events was home to esl to mm. a pgl to a dream hack there wasn't these open market third-party tournaments that they could like snatch up and start broadcasting as with their commentary team they did have a lot of success as individual talent but i feel like room on fire as a broadcasting studio never really took off just because of the way the scene was very different that was that's another valve game and i think it did have a more open market, but because they weren't running first-party events, um, they didn't ever really take off. And that's where we kind of shifted and had to, I think, shift to remain um, relevant the way we have as like a kind of broadcasting commentary house in Dota. We've kind of just become the go-to channel on Twitch. Our Twitch channel is the second biggest English channel on Twitch in terms of lifetime views after Riot Games. So we've just been around for a long time. Everyone knows if you want to watch Dota, and you're on the Twitch directory, look for Beyond the Summit stream. It's just like a go-to link. Um, and that for us has always been the case. And it's we've been able to maintain that because we've not, we focus on running our own first-party events as well. Yeah, so you mentioned there's been some slight changes in your company and also esports over the past few years since you've been operating. And obviously, as with any startup, there's a lot of pivots that need to take place over that time. Are there any major pivots that happened for BTS that were maybe behind the scenes that people wouldn't be aware of just watching as a fan? Yeah, I think so. I think the the big pivot we've talked about a little bit publicly, and I, I kind of mentioned a bit earlier here, was that we stepped away from just being a talent house. Um, we kind of changed our understanding of how Dota specifically worked for us. Uh, we had a lot of great, fantastic people who worked with us purely as broadcasting talent who would just come into the office, cast Dota 50 hours a week, and then that was their week. What we realized is that wasn't really growing the business and it wasn't really scalable. So we kind of took, took a step back from focusing on talent um, and talent development and just broadcasting in-house and looked more at running first-party events and becoming more of a production company, becoming more of a multi-game company as well. Uh, that was kind of the next step for us. So it was like, okay, we've created this great product for Dota and we're going to run these sustainable events. How do we now apply this model to other games? So we initially got into Smash three and a half years ago and ran our first uh, Super Smash Brothers melee event and using the same kind of model we had had with Dota, which was initially with Dota, they had the crowdfunding and game, which was really successful for us. They're able to help us grow our prize pool, attract more top talents and teams. We then applied that kind of crowdfunding model to Smash as well and really helped mm -hmm. grow their scene, offer some of the biggest prize pools uh, that the Smash scene's ever seen, bring in all the top talent and run a kind of unique new style event for them. So for us, the, yeah, the two biggest pivots was kind of yeah, more first party events and then also branching out into new games. So there are, any, are there any major gaps that BTS wishes or you wish that you had support for? Are there any pitfalls in the esports arena or, or business arena that you, that you need filled before you can scale further? Um, I think for us, we've always been a company that prides ourselves in being sustainable. Like we've never taken outside investment. We're looking to grow in an organic way that doesn't require us to... I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. I would say... To me, I think it's like you're not relying on the actions of others for your company to exist. Like you're more, sure. you're getting to the fact that you're you're more self-sustainable, I guess, and you don't need other people to put runs on the board or to make wins for you to be able to advance as well as a company. 
Yeah, I'd say that's true. And I'd say another big part of it is we've been self-sustainable, but also focused on not just self-sustainable in terms of the finance of the company, but also in terms of the employee health, because I think we've um, want to not require employees to be overworking. We've also want people to work on stuff they're passionate about. Um, we found the most success, um, all of our best new products we've done, things like initially the Summit, things more recently, like we did an event called BotTI, and also the games we branched out to, which was initially Smash, uh, later CSGO. We've done a Dragon Ball Fighter game, which was a big hit. These events have been successful for us because we have people that were passionate about them and really wanted to drive and push them forward. So we've kind of stepped mm. away and turned down different content and events that didn't appeal to us. We've not really you know, pursued doing certain games that we don't necessarily think of bad games, but they didn't appeal to us. Things like you know, PUBG when it was really big, things like Fortnite right now. For us, it was easier just to say, look, we could do an event for Fortnite and you know, find some sponsors and brands who want to get on the Fortnite hype and throw some money at us, but we don't want to do that. We want to dedicate our limited resources. We only have 20 people working for us there in the US. We want to mm. um, put all that into running first-party events that we care about, that we're going to see a potential future in. So we yeah. believe that it's better to focus on building something that's going to be long-term and not just like a one-time cash grab. Yeah, for sure. So talking on that on that cash angle, lovely segue. I know. For talking on the cash angle, how does how does BTS function revenue stream wise compared to a traditional caster house or even a traditional talent or tournament operator? And do you find that there's more safety in those revenue streams that you bring in? And is that part of the success that you've seen? Yeah, I think uh, for us, a lot of our revenue is coming in from um, I mean traditional streams that other organizers have, which is primarily uh, distribution and sponsorships, um, mm. which was where we saw those as revenue streams that would scale a lot more compared to the talent side of things, which was just talent fees for being hired to events. That was kind of very slow linear growth for us. And there was only so much expansion we could do as a company, just focusing on the talent and commentary side of things, so which is where we looked at sponsorships, we looked at running our own events, we looked at distribution with Twitch, with foreign language partners in different regions and uh, linear TV and saw, okay, this is actually where we need to be focused. You know, Maybe five years from now, there's going to be you know, our esports tournaments being broadcast on major TV networks. We're already being broadcast in uh, many different countries in like the UK and Southeast Asia and China on uh, cable TV networks. And for us, that was... Um, something that we saw and really allowed us to grow and expand and do more with our events. Um, that was just a lot more sustainable for us. That was just something that we found made a lot more sense as well. Yeah, I guess if nothing else, you get you get the advantage of owning the content. So, you know, you do have that. You're, you're in that lovely niche where you have the possibility for you to be on stage at TI while also owning the content in a different realm, running your own BTS events and, and stuff like that too. So you can, it's not so much double dipping, but you're getting different market segments all at the same time. Yeah, and I would say to the extent I'm I'm still very visible at a lot of these events like TI, like whatever Dota major events going on throughout the year, that's much more me still being a face for BTS, but not actually um, functioning as a core part of our BTS business model. Um, it's still mm. something I'm very passionate about and love doing, which is a big part of why I'm still at as many events as I go to. But ultimately, that today is very loosely connected to what we do at BTS. It's almost like a, a side project in some ways for me that does still help promote my brand and then indirectly promote BTS's brand. Um, I think because people associate me so strongly with BTS as one of its founders, um, and then 
I'm still so prominently featured at so many of these Dota events. Yeah, so taking a bit of tangent, uh, and this is BTS related as well as talent related, but there's there's been some talk about forced professionalism, especially in Dota recently. So, you know, scratching my head and thinking back, commentators were always a t-shirt and shorts type people, and then you probably saw Tasteless Anartosis. They started donning the, the sports jacket with a t-shirt underneath, and then you kind of see a step-by-step process until now we're in full suits or tuxedos um, with bow ties, etc. It's obvious that BTS, especially with some of your home tournaments, you've been much more casual in your approach. Do you find that that's a that's a, a tactic or a business decision from BTS to do that? Or do you find that it's just a natural progression and going back to like what you were saying, it's just what your talent and what your staff want to do? I think it's both. Um, we're running events for ourselves out of a house when we do summits. So it would look very out of place. I think if we told talent to wear suits and uh, be sitting on a couch and just not wearing their comfortable everyday clothes, because the whole, I think, premise of the event is, hey, this is just um, players and talent hanging out in the house doing everyday stuff. Well, oh, there's a Dota tournament going on. So mm. um, it definitely wouldn't fit with our events. But I would also say there is a conscious effort from us to just remind people that it's still video games. We're still people are playing this to have fun. Yeah, there's a lot of money at, at stake, but it's here and it exists. And these people are playing for all this money because of the community who end of the day are just playing video games and relating to them mm. is very important for us. And I think that's a lot easier to do when you're not wearing you know, suits, ties, jackets, and all that. So we've always tried to create a more casual vibe with all the events we do, even when it's not um, a home-style event like the Summit. Um, we've done broadcasts from our studio for different size Dota 2 events. We've done a Dota 2 major last year that we were the English broadcast partner for from LA. It was uh, the MDL. China, when it was one of the, those 11 Dota majors. It was the one in China. And mm. we had people in our studio casting in their pajamas. <laughs> um, that was, I think, pushing it maybe a bit further in the casual direction. But yeah. it was... We're they're casting from midnight till nine in the morning because it's um, Asian hours and we're in LA. And I think we just kind of came to a decision that, well, let's make our approach to doing this. The fact we're not on site, we're not in front of an audience. People know it's BTS, um, that we're more casual. Let's just have fun and let people mess around a bit and be silly. And fans, I think, end of the day, are very receptive to that and, and enjoy that a lot more, at least the break from the um, very professional style broadcasts. Um, not to say we'd be opposed to doing a um, professional style broadcast. I think in the future, if we did do like a BTS major in North America, it would probably be a bit more you know, suit and tie kind of affair. But it's it's something we, for the most part, avoid if we don't think the occasion merits it. And is and obviously like you've mentioned a few times, this is the kind of pitch to, or the quote-unquote pitch to the fans is that you're natural. Is this the same business pitch that you're giving to the sponsors as well? Are you following the same narrative? Yeah, I think sponsors that we've worked with, um, we've had long-term partnerships with Monster Energy, with Sennheiser, um, more recently with AOC. These companies love our style of content. Um, it's directly engages fans a lot more. Uh, we've often put a content style twist as well where we've created um, like custom video ads for some of those partners like Sennheiser where we create something a bit more silly fun and loose for them um, particularly with involving like the players at our events where it's not really just an ad showing off their product it's just like a funny little everyday life skit um, that just happens to feature their products so that's mm. something that I think a lot of the brands and sponsors and partners we've worked with really find appealing that hey you know they've they can already sponsor those big professional stadium style events but if you want to reach a different demographic and find a different way to en engage potential consumers, BTS events is a great way to do that. 
Yeah, so you mentioned before 11 majors last year, obviously a lot of your own events happening, um, other events that you guys are commentating too. So esports is very 24-7, there's a lot of different time zones. Do you find that hard to relax personally or as a company? I personally do. It's kind of hard to switch off, um, particularly when for me it's just I've always been so invested in BTS. Um, I'm obviously a large stakeholder in the company and that's also made harder because esports there isn't really an off switch um, for the scene uh, it just feels like mm. everyone's in such a mad rush to go from one event to the next um, from uh, one project to the next even when there's maybe a weekend without a big dota tournament it's everyone wants to plan the next one and everyone wants to get ready for the next big thing so it's constant stream of just communication for me part of it is my own fault and not just um, esports as a scene but um, I, you know, take a holiday and go somewhere. I still feel like I'm checking my phone and replying to emails um, every day, just partly out of uh, my own personal uh, lack of self-control to just step aside, but also because of the, the nature of the beast that is esports. Yeah, so taking that and, and putting it into a scene perspective or a player's perspective, do you think that the change to majors this year is a good thing for the scene? Do you think that adding less of, because obviously there's 11 last year, there's, there's just about half of those this year. Is that something that's going to help advance the scene? Do you think more content isn't always better? It'll help um, players manage their schedules and avoid some of that burnout that faced a lot of teams, talent, um, organizers last year. It was just, it felt like there was no time to breathe between events. And you could never really step back and assess, hey, do we need to play this next tournament? It just felt like you had to play everything because it's, you know, TI's at stake and there's $20 million prize pool. It's the only event that really matters for teams. But to get there, you mm. have to play all these other majors. So this year feels a lot more concise in some ways, but at the same time, it just feels nice for the teams uh, to know these are the five majors that matter. These are the events you need to play um, or at least you know try qualify for. And outside of that, you can pick and choose when you want to have a holiday, when you want your team to take a break, when you want to play one of these you know third-party events like a, like a Dota Summer that BTS is organizing or an ESL event. And um, I think for, for teams and players, it's a big improvement. Yeah, and I've always found it personally very interesting, that trade-off of, obviously, you know, a lot of people say League of Legends versus Dota, um, and it's a, you know, it's a very similar game, but different. And I always found that interesting about the business model of the two games as well. Obviously, what you touched on at the start, Dota 2, Valve is extremely hands-off, while they are, you know, slightly hands-on with some of the majors. It's the opposite to League of Legends, you know, with Riot Games. They're controlling everything from the minor regions like the OPL here in Australia to the LCS, and they're all feeding into each other. Do you, do you find, you know, watching a lot of these tournaments and understanding the business market, do you find that one model you think is better than the other? Do you think a hybrid might be better? Just even a bit of theorizing would be interesting to get your thoughts. Yeah, we've... I, for me, it's it feels hard to not support the more open model because that's where we found our success. Um, BTS wouldn't exist today if it wasn't for the fact that mm. um, the Dota ecosystem worked how it does. But there's a lot of downsides to how um, Dota has operated as an esport. We're seeing it over the even just recently over the past weeks and months where there's a lot of controversy around Valve's lack of communication around them um, letting the kind of scene and the issues that come up play out rather than actually actively getting involved um, mm -hmm. whereas then you have Riot who the second you know there's a, a player discretion they're stepping in finding him punishing him and addressing the situation so mm. I, I think like you say there might be a hybrid somewhere more in the middle that would make sense um, which is I think maybe where Valve is trying to correct themselves towards right now they've you know started the DPC last year they then innovated tweaked it a bit where they now down, went from 11 to 5 majors um, they're a lot far fewer events they're just looking at it in a way where we've got this season that builds towards ti and each event throughout the year that's a part of the dpc makes sense 
but at the same time they're still pretty hands-off there's still room for these third-party events you don't have you know riot saying if you're in the lcs you can't take part in any other event you know if bts wanted to run a, a league of legends summit riot would be like no you, you can't do that and these players only appear in lcs events mm. so i think what's best for the fans is different to what's best for you know the game developer which is going to be what's different to what's best for an event operator or, or broadcasting studio like bts or an esl for example so it's trying to find the right balance um i think a lot of developers are just taking the approach of doing what's in their best interest which is where you find riot blizzard and these companies that are very restrictive of their game ip um and also even their their players and their ip and they they want them to only be playing in official developer sanctioned leagues and events so Ultimately, I don't know if that's what's best for the fans, but um, they those companies both create a fantastic fan product. End of the day, so it's not it's definitely not a bad thing. Hmm. So putting your CIO hat on for a minute with BTS, there's been a lot of interest from traditional business people, businessmen and women wanting to get into the esports space. So, you know, there's been a lot of interest from general managers and CEOs of traditional sporting teams, from marketing directors of traditional companies, et cetera, et cetera, wanting to make the move across to the exciting space of esports. Where do you find the balances of esports experience versus business experience? And what can a traditional business person do to kind of skill themselves up? And, and what are you looking for for BTS if you want to bring one of those people in uh, i think for us um seeing the sheer amount of interest from investors and people with a lot of capital who want to get into the space it's um the hardest thing is, is always education um and i think a lot of them make the mistake of you know just having this strong business background and experience you know with startups with you know their own industries that they think can just translate over into the esports scene without fully maybe understanding um what is esports? So mm. a big struggle for us, whether it's with businessmen and women who are looking to get into the scene or, you know, non-endemic brands or, or partners is just educating them like this is esports. You can't just approach it the same way you do even like traditional sports, for example, like a lot of the people we've talked to have this background in traditional sports and they want to apply the same things they know and have learned there to esports, which isn't always going to be the case. So um, I think it's still necessary to have that um, strong business understanding, but without um, understanding, knowing esports and talking to people who have a history and really deep understanding, you're not going to find that you're spending money wisely in esports. Is your advice similar for non-endemic brands that are looking to invest some money into the space as, as a sponsor or a part owner of something that's happening? Yeah, I don't think it changes. I think uh, it's really comes down to, yeah, talking to the right people all the time or being really diligent about doing your own research. Uh, I think there's ways that you can learn and understand the scene without just having to you know, go to someone um, to get consulting on the scene. Um, that's definitely the quickest mm. and maybe easiest way, but then you're also you know, taking a chance on whether you're talking to the right person or not. But ultimately, I think you have to be understanding that what works and how the esports system is ran is just very different anywhere else. It's still new and young, and I think a lot of brands see that and think, well, you yes, you're doing something different, but that's because you know you're this new industry and you're just doing it wrong. But ultimately, um, you know, we have this huge market share, particularly of the young demographic, who you know people are watching more yeah. esports on Twitch than they are like a lot of these professional sports these days, and that's for a reason. That's because we're doing something right, even if these more like traditional um, businesses will come in and say, "Oh, you need a change and be and fit the model of what already exists with you know TV and and traditional sports," which end of the day isn't why esports is where it is today or gaming in general yeah i find that really interesting um and that 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 
last comment definitely strikes home for me a lot. I get a lot of questions from people in the Australian community that say, you know, what do I think about traditional broadcasters or or even just fans of sport or sport leaders that they say, you know, esports isn't a sport or it's not a real thing. And I follow the same of what you're saying is that we have such a large market here. We're building our own industry. And you can see definitely from some of the non-endemic campaigns that come in that haven't done it right, the market really dictates and is very vocal about what they want and what they like and what they don't like. And that you often see that you know a company either needs to come in quite hard but with open hands and say look we're investing a lot of money into this space because of these reasons or you know a a very good case study we've seen here in australia with mcdonald's with blizzard is they come in extremely softly and they start off just by putting one little logo here and another little logo here and then kind of ramping up their exposure from there so are there any are there any case studies you think that might be good to look at for someone who you think that's doing it well at the moment um, with as far as like non-endemics go, yeah. I mean the the ones I've probably been most um, visible on have been like maybe some of the recent like Mercedes integration, some of these ESL events where I feel mm. like they initially came in and had this marketing campaign built around you know um, go and live life, play outside. It was almost like an anti-gaming campaign, which was received very poorly by the gamers who were watching the Dota two events that Mercedes were were essentially sponsoring at the time. And then mm. um, I think from event to event, there was like a, a change in their approach and. Um, philosophy around it where they recognize okay you know our audience is not the same audience that you know we're advertising to when you know mercedes sponsors um wimbledon or a tennis grand slam whatever whatever other events they're you know sponsoring or partnering with um they had to treat dota and esports very differently so Mm. they created a a new advertisement they um, had to really shift their strategy and um, cater to this new audience who were very receptive to mercedes as a sponsor for the event and like a lot of the humor and twitch memes that came out of it was really engaging with mercedes as a brand but it only happened because of that shift in their approach to the way they advertised for the event Mm, yeah, and keeping keeping that same flavor of non-endemic brands, it, I'd be interested to see your thoughts on this of a, of a brand segment or a market segment you'd like to see come into esports. So an, an interesting one uh, for me is uh, white goods brands. So, you know, as, as with a lot of people in esports, I moved out of home at 19 to work in the industry to start doing that kind of stuff. Had no idea what fridge, washing machine to buy. I had little idea what TV to buy. Generally, it was monitor brands that were already um, spoken to me, uh, you know, through watching tournaments and engaging with Twitch youtube etc are there any special market segments you think that that should be getting into the space that aren't thinking about it so far um i would love to see um more kind of healthy living um brands get in i think that's something which Hmm. gamers are not um aware enough of of their own personal health and uh i think a lot of the particularly living in california it's a very very green state um very health conscious state and i think Gamers are receptive, um, become at least becoming more receptive to their own personal health, particularly professional ones. Um, even just everyday casual gamers at home realize, you know, it's you know, it's it's not healthy to sit on front of your computer for twelve hours straight playing video games. You need to take rest. You need to eat well. Mm. It's a great hobby, but it's always about balance and moderation. So there's like some health foods companies near us that we've been approaching and really want to see them try and market their products um, to the esports audience, um, particularly ones that are more kind of environmentally friendly. There's one called like Imperfect Produce who work directly with farmers for their excess um, vegetables and fruits that they can't sell to grocery stores. And we want to basically say, well, why don't you advertise your products to the esports audience? It's convenient. You deliver to their homes. That's great. You know, gamers don't want to go to a supermarket. They just want food delivered to their door and Mm. it's healthy. So I I would love to see a a shift towards just um, healthier living for, for gamers particularly. 
Yeah, fantastic. And and obviously the you know the education is something that that resonates with us quite well here at at Big. You know, we're we're running a high school boot camp soon, which you know we have got some speakers coming in to talk about mental health and also wellness and and physical fitness. You know, giving away water to the people attending instead of it's at a cinema, so instead of giving away popcorn and Coca Cola, we're giving away water and just trying to educate people on those options. And I think it's fantastic because what you're seeing a lot now, you know, anecdotally in esports is yeah, just the brands that are pushing the products, and then obviously it's the fast mover consuming good companies that come in and we're seeing that here in australia now too with you know with us sitting a few years behind the u.s mm-hmm. uh, a lot of those first mover brands are the mcdonald's are the hungry jacks which is a great option but not what should be the whole of the industry yeah and i think even i mean you mentioned giving away like the water bottles and save your traditional snacks that's something which even recently within um esports has been there was like a stay hydrated campaign where it was just like constantly being talked about they were like on different tournaments like look Viewers at home, players here, you know, always, you know, stay hydrated, drink water. And um, it's great to hear those kind of things are really starting to take off. Yeah, fantastic. So let's say that that you're a young gods in 2018. Um, you know, you're 17, 18 years old and you've got the goals and aspirations to commentate at TI11, for example. What are some of the actionable steps and what's some of the process that you can take and goals you can set to get from where you are now to on stage with Toby Wine casting the grand finals? Uh, yeah, I think it's just, I, I think the hardest thing for me is people who often um, come up to me and ask, like, you know, what what do I do? Um, and I think a big part of it is you just got to go and start doing it. If you, one, be passionate about it, two, um, find your niche um, mm. and don't question whether you're you know doing the right thing or not like if you're if you're enjoying it and doing it um if you're passionate and just doing it because you're enjoying it and not purely for like out of this okay i'm going to make a career out of it and um you know see this you know be a ti11 casting alongside toby i think you've got the wrong approach you need to um just be at least approaching initially as something where you know it's it's not going to be a career on day one it's something you have to you do need to build towards it does need to be something you're legitimately um willing to put time into improving um Mm. you need to grind a lot you need to um, really hone your craft and i think a big part of that is figuring out yeah what is your niche are you going to you know what style of caster are you are you going to be you know play by play color what do you offer that's different to someone else um i think a hard realization for a lot of new casters that i talk to who come to me and be like well how do i get to these events there's all these you know last year there was 11 majors and 11 minors and a lot of these newer casters felt like oh it's just the same uh, talent going to all of them like how do i break in why can't like they're casting a lot of these online smaller qualifiers smaller events like well you know how do i get a shot and it's like well mm. who are you going to replace um end of the day it's like if you're going to be at this event that means maybe someone else isn't going to be there um there is a lot of events i think there's there's a lot of gigs out there but there's still a finite number so you have to find a way to make what you do different and set yourself aside from the competitive field at the same time a big part of that is not being too competitive about it because um, you have to end of the day when you're at these events work alongside everyone else there you're essentially a team um, who has to create the best viewing product for the audience so um, having the right mindset being um, likable being approachable being willing to listen to feedback is very important as well Mm. so uh, kind of wrapping this up a little bit let's say dota falls over tomorrow uh, the community leaves, they're not interested in playing anymore. What's the next in-line passion for you? Is there any specific game that you commentate or would you put your business hat on full-time and, and just be running BTS? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I definitely, if yeah, BTS would definitely come first and, uh, uh, you know, look to push it forward with or, with or without Dota, I guess. Um, I, I mean, I love esports and gaming, so that's definitely something that mm. uh, wouldn't change overnight if the Dota 2 community disappeared. I'm definitely looking at trying to 
balance up my lifestyle more. I think I mentioned how much I've had to work and not really step away um, from esports at times and find it hard to. So I'm trying to um, pursue other passions outside, at least as hobbies, which is um, you know something I'd have more time to do if that was the case. So mm. I, I mean, I love music, the arts, um, dancing, those kinds of things. So I would, I don't know, find 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 my niche somewhere else, maybe. I look forward to watching yeah. your Let's Dance yeah. YouTube videos. <laughs> Hopefully with slacks, actually. That'd oh, be good. No. <laughs> Hopefully with slacks. So where can where can people follow your work and uh, and see what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, follow everything BTS does. Um, we've got some great people back in LA putting on fantastic events. Um, one of the, I think, biggest realizations and crazy steps for me was just seeing the the first summit we ran when I wasn't there. We just have an amazing team who put on great events and can now do so independently without myself or LD being involved in every event. But for me personally, um. You know, follow follow the Beyond the Summit Dota coverage that we do, as well as um, the different Valve DPC events I'll be at. I'll be probably at many throughout the the next year, so you can follow me on my Twitter BTS Gods and I think everywhere else Instagram BTS Gods. I post a lot of uh, awful selfies on there, so uh, if you you like uh, douchey selfies, be sure to check it out. <laughs> Fantastic. So wrapping this one up, obviously you're you're back here in Australia at the moment for the largest Dota 2 tournament by a long stretch we've ever seen. You've seen a lot of the international esports scene and how it's developed. Are there any are there any poignant goals or tips you can give for the Australian esports scene, which is you know sitting three to five years behind the US, as to how we should look at things as we develop and and move towards a very professional and large industry? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is to focus more on growing the scene and not competing for what's already there. I think that's always been the hardest part from a pure business point of view for an individual and also for different um, companies in the space is just recognizing that your real competitor isn't that, you know, the team that you're going to be playing in your your next tournament who you're fighting for the number one spot in the tournament for. It's, you know, it's your biggest competitor is you know, the growing the audience is making is awareness is making that uh, watching esports becoming more accepted, more normalized and uh, just more welcome in Australian society and in the community here. All right. Fantastic. Thanks for coming along today to the uh, big esports podcast and uh, look forward to watching this weekend at the Convictus Dota 2 tournament. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. Today's podcast and all of season one and season two has been brought to you by our sponsor, PLE Computers.